Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama. Providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources, our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Vale-Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Jared Myrkle, a nationally recognized expert in high-quality instructional materials, commonly referred to as HQIM. Dr. Myrkle currently serves as a consultant specializing in the implementation of high-quality curriculum. He was formerly the Chief Academic Officer for Jackson-Madison County Schools in Jackson, Tennessee, and has served in various roles in public schools in Tennessee, including classroom teacher, assistant principal, curriculum supervisor, and assistant superintendent. Jared also has experience supporting reforms to the state of Tennessee standards and planning professional learning to support the standards implementation. Jared also helped launch Instruction Partners, a nonprofit organization that has worked with school districts across Tennessee and other states to implement high-quality curriculum. Welcome, Jared. I'm so excited to have you here today. Yeah, it's, it's nice to be with you. Great to see you. First of all, can you give our listeners some background on what high-quality instructional materials are and why they're important? Yeah, absolutely. Truthfully, I wish that the field had settled on a name other than high-quality instructional materials because you kind of have to take a deep breath before you dive into that. But when I think about high-quality instructional materials, a few criteria come to mind. First, that they're aligned to the academic standards. The materials are going to help teachers achieve the kind of end of year learning expectations. So that's probably first and foremost. Beyond that, you know, you want them to be rigorous. You want them to be something that are on a trajectory that are bringing kids to a level of college and career readiness by the time they complete their pre-K to 12 careers. When we get into talking about literacy, HQIM, we want those to include complex texts. We want those to include knowledge building opportunities. So students are coherently building knowledge over time on certain topics and the vocabulary that goes along with it that eventually turns into reading comprehension. And then in math, in a similar way, you want a coherent progression of learning that takes kids through a a process of conceptually understanding mathematics, uh, being able to apply that that, uh, learning, and then to get to a point of procedural fluency, you know, where they can do, do a lot of the math without thinking about the math so much and it becomes more automatic. So no, that was a long answer, but uh, those are some of the things that, that come to mind. One of the things that comes to my mind is the research that's coming out on just how impactful all of those things are. And so if you start thinking about all of those different components, then no wonder it's powerful. Sure. You take something like reading comprehension, which I think is if you had to identify a national issue that people wish they could wave a wand and 
and correct for it would probably be improving reading comprehension. And a lot of what we're seeing there is how important background knowledge is in terms of reading comprehension. You have to have the foundational skills. You have to, for most students, that means going through a structured or a systematic phonics program. But then it really turns into, do you have a broad enough knowledge basis to tackle the vocabulary that's going to enable your reading comprehension? And I think that's that's a slow hill to climb, and but there's some successes being made. We see the research there. It's just convincing enough people to trust the process and stick to the program until they see, you know, see the fruits of that labor. You mentioned slow climb, and that was one of the things that when a group of us from Alabama came to visit you at your school system, yeah, you talked about it not being one of those quick fixes. And so can you tell us a little bit about how you used this in your previous school system with such success and maybe what some of the wins were for both teachers and students in using these kinds of materials? Sure. So in my previous district, Jackson-Madison County School System in West Tennessee, we had a large population of students who come from low-income families, students that really overcoming some hurdles in terms of economic barriers and socioeconomic barriers that are creating some challenges for them. We made a commitment in our first year to really have a keen eye towards the materials that were in our classrooms. A lot of this work is grounded in Richard Elmore's instructional core, which basically says you got to have three things in place to really improve student learning. You got to have skilled teachers, you have to have strong content and engaged students. Well, a lot of work has been done around improving teacher skills in the classroom, right? Like most professional development focuses on pedagogy and strategies, but rarely had it focused on the materials that we're putting in front of kids. And so uh, we made a commitment to implement strong math materials, strong reading materials, and really bring our teachers into that conversation about why it was important. Why are we doing that? So making sure they understood the research around knowledge building and why that was one of those things that stands in the way of students who come from lower socioeconomic families. They don't often have the experiences, the background, the conversations in the household to build the background knowledge that students from more affluent families do. And so we made it more about the kids and what their needs were rather than what we're asking you to do as a teacher. Now, did we ask them to turn around and teach, you know, highly structured programs like core knowledge, language arts, or, or EL education? Sure. But that's what was required to get to that place of giving kids what they needed. And so it's not a quick journey. I like to say there's no shortcuts up a mountain. There's a lot of trails, but there's no shortcuts. It's all uphill and it's all hard. You can make it harder than it needs to be. <laughs> there's some trails you may not want to go down, but there's, there's not any shortcuts. And so we invested in that. We focused all of our professional learning for our core teachers around uh, curriculum implementation and made sure there were not only corporate PD opportunities, and when I say corporate, I mean like all teachers together doing that, but also that school level systems like walkthroughs and feedback conversations and planning, lesson planning and collaboration at the school level were all built around the materials implementation. So it's really a shift in how you do business and it requires a big commitment. I was writing down some of what you were saying about no shortcuts up a mountain. And I think that <laughs> that is really a great way to think about it because we're just so prone to look for the quick fit. We yeah. just won't, we want to turn it around overnight because we care about kids and we realize that we have this short time span with them. And so 
I get why we are like that, but there are no shortcuts up the mount. I love that. One of the things that I remember about talking to your teachers in Jackson Madison last year feels like that was about three years ago, but uh, I think that's just because we've been cooped up with COVID for so long. But when they implemented high quality instructional materials, obviously it was new curriculum. It's always challenging to, to implement anything new. But the thing that I took away from that conversation that I wanted to make sure that I included in this podcast was the teachers were overwhelmingly positive about how it had improved their practice and their stress levels and just everything about what they did in the classroom. And so could you talk to us a little bit about what the teacher's response was to implementing this and the benefits that maybe you didn't even expect to see that occurred? Sure. It always starts with how the leadership approaches the process of implementation. And I think, you know, one thing that we committed to is we're not just going to do this. We're going to confidently do this because we're not guessing. We know what the research says. We know what the evidence is. And we know that this is the right thing for kids. And we're also telling you on the front end, a couple of things, it's going to be hard and it's not going to happen fast. Like no one expects you to go from a lowest ranked school to a highest ranked school in one year. That's just not how this works. And if it did work that way, you shouldn't trust it. And you shouldn't trust anyone who tells you that the improvement happens that quickly. It's probably going to take three or four or five years. And so I think by approaching that, we're confident in this, but we're also know that it's going to take a certain amount of time. I think that lowered the anxiety level from the start. There's already enough anxiety when you do something new when you do something new and then you have unrealistic expectations about how quickly it's going to turn around, that's a recipe for disaster. And we not only carried that message to the teachers, we shared that message to the community. We shared that message with the school board. And so you think about that, like not many superintendents or chief academic officer or whatever, make a point to go to the school board and say, we're doing this, but it's going to be like five years, right? Uh, that, that's not a message you hear very much. Everyone wants results now. You're going to improve now. We're very candid. I think because of our commitment to implementing the materials well, we are also able to align, like I said earlier, everything that we asked the teachers to do to that implementation. So we didn't have professional development at the beginning of the year about some other thing. And then they go implement their materials. For three straight years uh, while we were there, the PD at the beginning of the year was about their curriculum. That was kind of a mindset shift for a lot of teachers. They weren't used to having that direct connection to their their day-to-day practice. The walkthroughs were specifically geared towards how well are you implementing your materials and, and how are your students responding. Their PLC agendas were targeted at the curriculum. Their evaluations were tied into their use of the curriculum. So everything was aligned. And that was one of our big priorities was this idea of program alignment and everyone knowing like, oh, this is our North Star and everything falls under here. When you live like that for a year or so, people relax a little bit. They take ownership of the work. And I think that was the word that we kept thinking about as we moved into year two. Year one, this is a leadership, like we're communicating, we're trying to get 
all the ducks in a row. Year two was we need teachers to take ownership of this. We need them to start leading. So we started convening grade level PLCs and let teacher leaders guide the conversation and talk about their usage instead of us. And so that I think really let it take off. Like it became their curriculum, not this curriculum the district bought. And so by the time that I left the district, for example, there were teachers who would just have a visceral reaction if you talked about taking these materials away from them. Like they can't imagine a scenario where they're not teaching core knowledge in kindergarten or first grade or EL in fifth grade. It was theirs. They had spent three years getting to know it, making it theirs, refining it. Yeah, I just think that's that's a part of, you know, an effective process. Me too. And I think that that obviously was the sign of really great leadership on on your part and at the district level to design it that way. So I applaud you for that. Say, I had a good team around me. It wasn't just me. We tried to elevate every bright spot that we could. So every time we saw a great example or got a great benchmark score or this or that, we really amplified that and made sure teachers saw the successes that were happening around them. So it was a it was a really you know great team effort. Absolutely. There's a national movement to use high-quality instructional materials, and I know that you're doing consultant work around the country on this issue. Why do you think this idea has really gained such traction? That's a great question. I think school leaders and teachers are smart people, and they are tired of trying things that don't work. So how often can we host professional development sessions on finding the main idea or isolated vocabulary strategies before we figure out that that's that's not really getting the job done, right? Like we've done that. We've done it for decades. It's not working. What we haven't done for a sustained period of time is implement knowledge-rich curricula and stuck to that. And so I think it passes the common sense, like hypothesis test, like a sniff test almost for people. Yeah, it kind of makes sense, right? Like if we teach kids about a lot of topics and really build some deep vocabulary in specific topics, kind of makes sense that they would be able to apply that learning to a broader spectrum and tackle text as they encounter words that they may not have seen before by being able to use the context around those words. You know, the the broader your vocabulary is, the greater chance there is you dive into something you don't know in a cold read and be able to come out of that with a good understanding of what you've read. So I think it makes sense to people. I think when you walk And a lot of it requires being in classrooms and I walk with principals and superintendents and they're able to see like, oh, like our kids aren't in complex texts as much as they need to be. Or, yeah, that main idea lesson I just saw in sixth grade is pretty similar to the main idea lesson I saw in third grade. Like, you know, they're not seeing the distinction between grade levels and the misalignment that occurs, you know, using a tool like the instructional practice guide, for example, to capture that information. I think it just comes together, makes sense to them. Once they see it in their rooms, they think about the research and then say, yeah, we haven't done that. And when you're able to show, for example, what it's looked like in other countries when it's been done well. So, for example, Edie Hirsch 
includes some research around what happened in France in the 90s after they removed their you know national kind of knowledge-rich curricula and how their reading performance took a nosedive. There's some pretty large-scale examples of what it's looked like when it's gone well. And I think we already know what it looks like when it doesn't go well because we just look at our NAEP scores across the country and see like, yep, we're still not getting it. That's interesting that you mentioned France. I was uh, in a webinar last week from the UK and they actually pulled out the Hirsch book and and talked about so many of the same things. And I did not understand really how international this movement was. Yeah, absolutely. And common sense plus the research to back it up that it's working. I think that that to me is the uh, part that is so appealing is, yeah, it makes sense to me. And so you can get people to buy into it. But then when the research starts saying that it's working, that's super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Many states have really struggled with using best practices around textbook and program adoptions. Why do you think this is and what solutions do you see for this issue? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think a lot of states are hesitant to get into the conversation this idea of local control kind of perpetuates. States are hesitant because policymakers are hesitant to say, hey, school districts, we're going to take this list of 150 programs that you could adopt last time and narrow it down to 20 that are actually of quality based on certain criteria like the reviews that Ed Reports does or even independent reviews using other rubrics like the IMET or the Equip rubrics. There's other ways to to measure quality, but I think there's a hesitancy to tell districts uh, more directly what they can and can't do. That's one. I think, secondly, if you're a school leader, you generally think that, you know, the fifth grade math teacher is teaching fifth grade math and the eighth grade English teacher is teaching eighth grade English. We, in some cases, haven't considered the idea that the fifth grade math teacher might be teaching second grade math or the eighth grade reading teacher might be teaching fifth grade reading. And so that goes back to being in rooms and looking for those specific things. So I think when you make that alignment between the states hesitant to lean into the conversation, the districts in some cases may not know how to start that improvement process because they don't really know what to look for, haven't looked for it before you kind of get a perfect storm where people continue to do what they think is best, right? Like no one's out there trying to underperform or, or not running good schools, but sometimes people just don't know how to start. And, you know, I think states are in a position to do that. I know in Tennessee, for example, there was a group of districts that started this conversation before the state really leaned into the conversation five or six years ago. And so, I think that's what it takes sometimes, a group of districts and states who say, you know what, like we probably need to focus on this to to prompt some action. I know you guys have some of that same conversation happening in Alabama. We do. Still talking about those high quality instructional materials, making the choices, looking at research. I know that you believe in ed reports a lot. And so can you really talk about the kind of things that people should be looking for in materials? Sure. I think nationally, most states at this point, they don't want to say they're using common core standards. They're using some version of them for the most part. A lot of states, there are a few who aren't, but Tennessee, for example, went through this process of revising the standards so that they're the Tennessee academic standards and not the common core standards. Well, newsflash, they're still the common core standards. 
So standard alignment is a huge deal. So you have to be able to look at the materials and see, are these aligned to the standards that we're using in our state? If your state's using some version of the Common Core standards, which again, majority are, then Ed Reports is going to be a pretty easy way for you to make, make those determinations by their you know red, yellow, green system of, of ranking things. That's the foundation is standard, standard alignment. Then I think just get in there and look at some of the reviews. You've got more than one place to go, but I would encourage people to get into the weeds and, and read the reviews on Ed Reports. Don't just go by the colors. Read the reviews. Look at the criteria. Look at what they were looking for. Go to Louisiana Believes and look at how they ranked and reviewed and tiered tiered that uh, curricula. And then compare, right? Like, see, Ed Reports said this about this curricula. Louisiana Believes said that. Uh, get into some of those nuances. I think those are important things to do as you narrow a list of of options for your teachers. But I'll say this. I mean, I wouldn't get too bogged down because at the end of the day, it's either pretty good or it's not. Those groupings are easier to make. It's easier to point at the pretty good stuff and the not so great stuff. Then it's just a matter of figuring out what fits your district and what's going to be right for, you know, kind of the personality and the culture of your district and what your teachers will embrace and involve them in the conversation. I mean, they, they know they're the ones that are going to have to use it. And so making sure they're comfortable with the options and, and a part of that process just helps you out down the road. Good information. I know that your work in school improvement has gone far beyond the high quality instructional material aspect. What are the things that you think hold great promise for improving the results that we have with students? And how do you think we go about making those things happen? Well, that's a big question. Yeah, I might uh, have broken that into like little pieces <laughs> because it's so big, but. Yeah, I honestly like simplicity and focus. I think simplicity and focus are innovative <laughs> in a way. And what I mean by that is we're so used to trying to do so many things tackle every challenge that comes along because that's what we're called to do. But I get excited when I go into schools and they're like, there's 20 things we could work on, but we actually know that these three are the most important. And we're going to start with these three. When I see that happen, I get excited. I used to tell our principals, if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. And so we're going to prioritize being in rooms. We're going to prioritize giving teachers feedback on what we see. So I think the most exciting things going on right now are are places that are the principals in particular are leaning into being instructional leaders, figuring out ways to navigate all the operational things that go along with the job, but uh, holding a really high bar for what the principalship is in terms of instructional leadership. That's an area I think that we should probably talk more about as a field and make sure principals feel comfortable delegating some some of those operational things to to others uh, so that they can free themselves up and be in the rooms. So I don't know if I really answer your question, but when I think about things that are having the biggest impact, it's places where superintendents have set an expectation for principals being in rooms, principals being the instructional leader. And then framing that work around implementing high quality instructional materials. I love the simplicity. I think the keep it simple, stupid is something Mm -hmm. that I personally go by. And mainly because you do start 
doing things poorly when you take on all of these things and you have the initiative fatigue and you have people who just push back because you can't do all of those things well. So I do think that that's brilliant. And I was reflecting on what you were saying about the instructional leadership component. And we know that it's so essential. And it feels like it's yet another one of those pendulum swings that we were paying attention to. And then sometimes we back off and then we go back into it. And so I do think some of the same things that we know are needed and true for instructional leadership haven't changed. Yeah, I think you're right. Mike Schmoker in his book, Focus, that a lot of people have read, basically says schools would actually be more successful if they did less, but did it better. And I think that's that's kind of what we're, what we're talking about. I was really proud when I was in district. We used the same three or four slides to open professional development every year for three straight years because the focus didn't change. It's like we're going to improve what we're teaching, how we're teaching it and really engage our kids. And that sort of framing was there. And I think that helps teachers out too, right? They know the game's not changing every time they turn around and they can really commit to a course of action. And it's the opposite of thinking that you've got to do something new and something else to improve. It's that keep doing what you're doing and get better at it continuously and those results will come. So I do think that you and I have very similar thoughts on that. Great. <laughs> Are you seeing any promising work on how to deal with the learning loss caused by COVID-19? Yeah, I think this is an area where there's a really strong chance that people are going to overcomplicate this. The past 12 months have been just crazy. Like we all recognize that. This has been an unprecedented period. I saw something on Twitter the other day that said, I'm totally ready for precedented times because <laughs> everything's, oh, this is unprecedented. We're tired of that word. Yeah, let's, let's, let's remove that word for a while. I think the most promising things that I've seen are, for example, in the context of this conversation, places that are implementing high quality instructional materials, like this isn't a time to set those aside. Like that's your playbook. So take what you know kids missed and allow that to be your summer learning program, for example, like accelerate learning inside of your curriculum. Use how you know the next grade level starts to sort of plan backwards and say, what do we need to do in April, May, June in order for August and September to get us back into a, a normal sequence? I truthfully don't know how districts that aren't implementing high quality instructional materials are even planning around learning loss, learning recovery, et cetera, because how do you know what they lost if you didn't know what they were going to learn in the first place in terms of the content in the classrooms? So to me, the past 12 months has really exposed the greater need for more districts to use a comprehensive high quality curriculum. And then I think, again, the places that have the best plans right now are the ones that are letting that curriculum drive their recovery and or their acceleration plans. I'm sure you are very familiar with TNTP's work around acceleration, and I love that work. So I don't think you could have said anything that resonated better with me, because I think the idea that we're going to intervene our way out of this mess is absurd, because we weren't we weren't getting a whole lot done with intervention in many cases before kids had this kind of loss. And so acceleration to me is 
the solutions. So it's interesting to hear you say that. I want to thank you for being with us today. It's always a pleasure talking to you and learning from you. I can't wait to see what you accomplish next. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our next podcast episode as we continue to explore literacy in the state of Alabama and what is working well in other parts of the United States.